Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are doing a, uh, a sermon series over these past months where we've been looking at the mission and values of our church. You know, we said uh, along the way that uh, there's certain things that every church has in common, right? Every church uh, shares a common uh, basic confession of faith. Every church uh, shares the call to make disciples of all nations. Every church uh, shares a calling to worship and to gather around the table. But what we try to do with our mission and values is answer the question, what's unique about our particular calling as a church? How do we uh, hear the voice of Jesus calling us to minister in our place and time and so, uh, our mission, uh, as you know, we preached through that a while back, to see and display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. And today, we're going to talk about one of our values. And I'm going to read, uh, this is uh, the wording on the website around this core value, joy. Worship is a feast. Jesus sets the table and invites us to eat, drink, and celebrate the gospel. We want to be a church that celebrates Jesus, that celebrates the gospel in joyful worship. Now, it, it may strike you as odd, if you have any experience with Presbyterians, um, which some of you do, we are a Presbyterian church, it may strike you as odd to find joy there on the front page. Uh, Flannery O'Connor once uh, famously wrote, Lord, from dour-faced Presbyterians, save us. Presbyterians have a, a, a reputation for uh, kind of long-faced seriousness. Uh, and we believe that while there's certainly much in life to be serious about, there's certainly much in our uh, scriptures to study, that if the gospel is good news, and that's what it means, that the response to good news ought to be joy. That the response uh, to good news ought to be celebration. Now, certainly there are other things that could be said about worship. Uh, ideally, you know, over the course of a worship service, you might go through many different emotions from self-reflection and sobriety at the prayer of confession to comfort uh, in the words of assurance to intimacy and love at the, around the table, right? We, we go through different emotions, but one of the things that we believe is that the overwhelming and, and, and central tone of Christian worship, indeed of the Christian life, ought to be one of joy. Paul uh, and the writers of the New Testament almost use the word worship, rejoicing, and thanksgiving as synonyms, right? Paul can call the early church to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances, and that was basically a call to worship. It's the call to joy. You know, we often think uh, of worship, or I'm sorry, we often think of joy as an emotional response, right? It's something that you, you feel when something happy happens. Uh, but it doesn't make much sense to command someone to feel a feeling, right? But if Paul can command us to joy, if he can command us to rejoice, that it means that in some ways rejo uh, rejoicing in joy is an intentional choice, that it's a posture of our hearts in response to the gospel, 
that we can take some ownership of cultivating in our lives a response of joy. So this morning, we're going to look uh, at a passage in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24, where Jesus tells us a story uh, about joy. He tells us a story about a banquet. This is one of Jesus's parables of the kingdom. Now, you know, when we call Jesus, when we, when we say Jesus Christ, when we call Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, what we're saying is that Jesus is the king, that he's the long-awaited king of Israel who came to bring his kingdom or his rule over all the earth. And because it's hard for human minds to really capture what that would look like, right? What it would look like when every bit of what sin is broken becomes whole, when everything bent becomes straight, when every injustice gets righted, when every tear gets dried. Because that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, Jesus often explained it in stories, saying, well, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God will be like that. And here, he tells us that the kingdom of God is going to be like a party. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Again, our scripture reading today is Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, continuing through verse 24. Now, Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. We have in this story one of those moments uh, that I can identify with. There's a man who's not named, who's sitting around the table listening to Jesus. And he, Jesus uh, says something uh, that we'll talk about in a minute, about how we ought to think about the guest list to the parties we throw. And this man just seems to blurt out, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I have a great deal of affinity and affection for the people in the Bible who speak first when they don't really quite understand what they should be saying, and he just goes, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. He's responding to this awkward moment that Jesus has created 
But he brings up a point uh, that would have been understood by the other Israelites around the table. When he says, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God, he shows uh, that he's aware of something that the prophets of the Old Testament taught, which is that the kingdom of God, when God comes and his reign comes on earth, that it's going to be like a feast, that it's going to, in fact, be a banquet of joy and feasting. Isaiah 25 tells the story, talks about uh, in that day, in the day that the the Christ comes, God's going to prepare a meal of rich food and well-aged wine. And so this man seizes on that. He says, Jesus must be talking about that banquet, that feast of the kingdom. Blessed is whoever's included in that, whoever's invited into God's party in the kingdom of God. You know, it's hard to read the Gospels. Uh, When you read the Gospels, one thing uh, just kind of jumps off the page at you, which is the central role that partying played in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus always seems to either be at a meal, headed to a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus uh, was known uh, for the people that he ate and drank with. For a man that Isaiah said would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, Jesus seemed to certainly enjoy a party. In fact, so much so that both his friends and his enemies said that he came eating and drinking with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Uh, Feasting was so important to Jesus' life that he began and ended his life, his public ministry, with wine. If you think about it, his first miracle at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when he turned uh, the water into wine and provided for wine in order to continue the life of this wedding reception that had run dry, saving uh, the groom and his family from shame. And then his ministry ends uh, with wine as he gathers with his disciples in the upper room and breaks bread and gives the cup and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Right? You won't really understand Jesus if you don't understand the central role that feasting, eating, and drinking, and partying had in his life. That was the reason, right? The reason the Pharisees and teachers of the law took issue with who Jesus hung out with, with the, what we're often ta- uh, called the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and notorious sinners, The reason the Pharisees had issue with Jesus spending time with these people isn't just because they didn't like them, although that might have been true. The reason they took issue with this is because they understood that it was a statement that Jesus was making about who would be included in the feast of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God, the party that God is throwing, is for people like this. It's not just for insiders, it's for outsiders. It's not for the righteous but for, as he says here, the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. Jesus is telling us something about his kingdom when he tells this story. He's saying that my kingdom is the dawning of a feast, right? That's what's happening at the wedding at Cana. That's what's happening throughout his meals. He's saying that the feast that we're waiting for in that day, when, Jesus, when, when God will satisfy every hunger and quench every thirst and dry every tear, The feast of that day is breaking out here in the midst of our day. And everywhere that my rule goes, everywhere that my kingdom casts its shadow, life breaks out, joy breaks out. As Isaiah put it, 
In Isaiah 55, the mountains and the hills break forth into singing and the trees clap their hands. Streams flow in the desert and flowers bloom in the wilderness wherever the light of Jesus' kingdom goes. But it's an invitation to joy. You know, you won't understand Jesus uh, if you don't understand this. I mean, you know, think about it. What kind of religious leader starts and ends his ministry with wine? What kind of, uh, of pioneer of a new faith, instead of laying down just a bunch of moral teachings uh, and instructions, begins and ends with an invitation to a meal? This is central to what Christianity is. It is an invitation to abundant life and joy. Right? You'll miss something of it if you think of it simply as a way to have your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. Right? No, it's more than that. It's also the offer of heaven's joy here and now in this life. You'll miss out on it if you think of Christianity simply as rules to follow for improving your life, for improving society. It may do those things, but first and foremost, it's an offer of abundant, freely given life and joy. It's an invitation to a feast. And it's a feast for the humble. It's a feast for the humble. I love uh, the way this story goes, starting in verse 12. Jesus is at the the house of one of these religious leaders, the ruler of the Pharisees, we're told in verse 1. And Jesus, uh, guest at this dinner party, looks around at all the people that are there, and then he says this. You know what? When you give a dinner or a banquet, you shouldn't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Now, imagine this. Imagine you've invited somebody over for dinner, and they're sitting around, polite company, everybody's enjoying it, everybody's having a good time, and all of a sudden, he starts telling a story, starts doing some teaching that is a direct indictment of everyone around the table. He looks around the dinner table and goes, you know what? When you throw a party, you shouldn't invite these people. You shouldn't invite people like this. This isn't, this isn't what it's for. Don't invite your friends, your relatives, rich people, or people that can repay you. What Jesus is doing here, he has his finger on something, which is that human beings, broken and sinful though we are, rarely, if ever, exercise a genuine act of love and hospitality. That even our hosting, even our inviting people into our home and sharing what should be an occasion for joy is often uh, a trade, right? We're often always thinking about what we can get out of what we've given, right? It's not a gift freely given or an invitation freely offered. It's an invitation offered with strings attached, with a, a quid pro quo, something expected in return. If we're honest, we all know that we do this. Right? You got to invite Bob and Sally to your wedding because they invited your parents to their wedding. And so if, they don't, if you don't invite them, then you're not going to get invited next time. Or, you know what? We really need to invite my boss and his wife over for dinner because he controls you know, my path up in the company and we need to make friends. Right? Or we're, we're new and we need to invite the cool neighbors down the street because we want to get in on their social circle. Right? We're always, when we, when, we, when we practice hospitality, we're always, at least a little bit, thinking about what's going to come around for us on the other end of it. And Jesus immediately sees this, and he says, look, when you throw a party, don't do it like this. 
And what he's doing, he's not simply critiquing this poor guy. He's saying, look, God does not throw parties the way you throw parties. God does not offer invitations in the way that you offer invitations. God doesn't look down the long list of humanity and say, who should I invite? Who's going to do good things for me if I invite them into my house? Who's going to offer me the most in return if I include them on my guest list? No, listen to what Jesus says. If you want to throw the kind of parties that God throws, it says, when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. What he's saying is that when you throw an earthly party, you ought not to think about who can repay you, but you ought to relate by grace. Say, who can I include uh, that needs inclusion? Who has life been hard to? Who gets left off of most of the guest lists? And how can we extend this invitation to them as well? The gospel uh, shows us a party with an invitation uh, that is sent out liberally and freely, not to the good or the strong or the righteous or the powerful, but to the broken, to the sinful, to the lame, to the crippled, and to the poor. He then goes on to tell a story that more directly makes this connection between the party he's urging this guy to throw and the kind of party that God throws. And in telling this story about the kingdom, he says, uh, you know, look, there was a guy who was throwing a party and he sent out invitations. And all of the people who said they would come, all of the people that were expected to come, when the moment of invitation came, when the moment came for them to show up at the feast, they all alike made excuses and begged their way out of it. And so he sends the invitation out more broadly. First, to the the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, that group that had been mentioned earlier. And then again, when there was still room, out to the highways and the hedges, that's, you know, both the back alleys and the country lanes, inviting the least likely to come in. And this really is the story of the New Testament, right? If you look at the story the New Testament tells from the book of Acts going forward, that it is the story of those who would have been expected to be on the inside, finding themselves on the outside, And those who are expected to be on the outside finding themselves on the inside, right? It's the story of uh, the religious leaders of Israel rejecting Jesus and not coming to faith in the Messiah, not receiving the kingdom. And so then the Gentiles gathered in, right? The the gospel going out uh, through Judea, Samaria, to Rome, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. The New Testament is the story, right, of not the Israelites, but the Gentiles, the unexpected outsiders gathered in, not the rich, but the poor, not the wise, but the foolish, coming into this uncommon family of faith, gathering together in the church, invited freely by grace. You think in the midst of that incredible invitation, this, this humbling invitation, they're all you have to do to receive it is just to say, yeah, me, I'm... I'm one of the poor and the crippled and the lame. I want to come to the feast. In the midst of such a gracious invitation, you go, well, hey, who could ever turn an invitation like that down? But in our story, we see that actually uh, we're given three people that turn it down. And when we listen to their excuses, we see, I think, a lot of our own excuses in the midst of it. One guy says, you know what? 
I've just bought a field, and so I have to go and inspect it. Please, please have me excused. Another one says, I've just bought a yoke of oxen, and I have to go check it out. Apparently, that's a thing you do when you buy a yoke of oxen. <laughs> Next guy says, I have taken a wife. I cannot come. We might object with the way that he puts that phrase, uh, but uh, it's a good thing. He's gotten married. He's got things to do. He's, he's making, a, making a home. These are all, every single thing that these guys say is a good thing, right? These are, these are them engaging in some of the very things that God created us as human beings to do on earth, right? One has bought land. He's working to cultivate the land and to make a living out of it. And another one's bought oxen, right? That wasn't a pet in the ancient world. That was a, uh, that was a tool of his trade. And the other one has, has gotten married. This is another created good that we're called to do. So these are good things that keep these men from receiving the ultimate thing, right? These aren't, uh, these aren't bad things. This isn't the guy going, no, you know what? Actually, I need to sit around and play video games all day. This isn't him saying, no, you know what? I need to go get drunk. This isn't uh, him, one of them saying, no, I've, you know. These aren't notoriously bad things. These aren't lazy things. These are created goods. But they've become for these people attachments that keep them from receiving this invitation when it comes, right? There's many ways uh, to miss out on the invitation to the kingdom, right? Some miss out like the younger son and the, and the prodigal son narrative, and they, they squander what's offered to them on wild living, notorious sins. But others just miss what matters most because they're preoccupied with things that also matter, but not ultimately, Right, I hear in this story the echo of the story that Jesus told. Remember the parable of the sower? When uh, the kingdom is likened to a man who went out and cast seed, and some fell on rocky soil and was eaten up right away. Others uh, fell and grew up really quick, and they were burnt by the sun. And he tells us that some received the message, and they grew up, and then they were choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. Right? Not necessarily sins, but the concerns and anxieties of this world choked out the life of the kingdom. Or maybe we think of Mary and Martha. Remember the two sisters that Jesus was gathered in their house. And Martha was going all about the business of, of playing the hostess, uh, serving the food, hosting the, the gathering, while Mary, we're told, sat at Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus say in response to these two sisters? Right? He doesn't critique Martha for hosting. Right? He doesn't say you're bad for making a beautiful meal and creating such a wonderful space. No, what does he say? He says, there's one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen the better portion. Right? That in the scope of necessary human concerns, those things all have meaning, but they only find their meaning when they're centered on the kingdom of God, when they're centered on Jesus. Right? As he says, seek first my kingdom, and all these other things will be given to you as well. We see in this story that one of the things that keeps us from receiving the invitation to deep and astounding joy in life with Christ is our preoccupation with other things, our preoccupation with lesser pursuits. You know, I had a, I had a counselor once tell me that the greatest tragedy in life isn't failure but succeeding at something that just doesn't matter that much, 
right? The, the, a tragic life isn't one that ends in just failure. It's one that ends in success, but it's success at the wrong thing, right? It's chasing something your whole life, pursuing it with everything you have, and then getting it and going, oh, I, it's not what I thought it was, right? It's getting to the top of a ladder that you realize too late was leaning on the wrong wall uh, all the time. It's chasing after what we think will bring us abundant life and joy, and then finding out that it comes up empty. And the tragedy of these men who, who resist the invitation to the feast is they, they resist and deny an invitation freely given to abundant life, right? It's possible that we spend our whole life chasing after something that Jesus offers to us freely. Right? It's, it's possible that we spend our entire life racked with anxiety and driven to pursue a ring that Jesus freely gives. And that's what's at stake in this invitation. The feast of God's kingdom. A freely given invitation to joy. Well, we said we were going to talk about worship. And we haven't talked much about worship. But don't worry, we're going to. Worship, what we do here when we gather to praise God, is a sneak preview and a foretaste of the feast that Jesus brings into the world. Right? The part of you, you know, when you when you hear this sermon, when you hear this parable, you hear, well, there's this invitation to abundant joy, there's this invitation to a feast. And if you hold on to your worldly pursuits too much, you'll miss it. Part of you should be going, well, what the heck do I do then? Because I do need to make a living, and I do need to pay rent or a mortgage, and I do have a family and friends, right? I can't just leave all this stuff and go party all the time, right? I can't just leave this stuff and go enter in dancing and prancing through life as a feast. There's real-world concerns here, and there are. But that is part of the way that Christian worship works. It's the pattern that God's given us of six days, six days to focus on the concerns of this life, our various callings, callings as friends and mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and uh, bankers and nurses and painters and all the different things he's called us to. We have six days to pursue all of these concerns. And yes, while every day is meant to be, and every bit of our jobs, every bit of our life is meant to be worshipful, it's all a lived response of gratitude. There's a pattern of one day where we're called to let it go and to receive an invitation into joy and into worship and into rest. Christian worship is meant to be a foretaste of heavenly joy, the light of which spills out to touch and transform every other bit of our lives, that the other six days are transformed by the call to worship that we receive on the seventh day. The Puritans used to call uh, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul. Right? Have you ever walked into a farmer's market or some place where you walk in, you got this amazing produce, all the fruits and vegetables you could eat, all the fish and meat and flowers and all, the, all this amazing stuff. Well, the Puritans had the saying, they said, you know, what that is to your body, worship is to your soul that it offers you everything that you need for the sustenance not of your body, 
but of your soul. And in that way, it's a foretaste in this life of the joy that we're made for, the joy that Jesus is bringing. C.S. Lewis uh, said in one of his letters, I'll, I'll read, this is a segment of one of his letters to his friend Malcolm. He talks about this anticipation of heavenly joy. He says, no, Malcolm, it's only in our off hours, only in our moments of permitted festivity that we find an analogy for heaven. Dance and games are frivolous and unimportant down here. For down here is not their natural place. Here, they are a moment's rest from the life that we are placed here to lead. But in this world, everything is upside down. That which, if it could be prolonged here, would be a truancy. That means, so he's saying, you can't live your life on earth dancing and playing games all the time, right? This life isn't a party. Uh, you can do it for a little while. You can take a break. You can play some games. You can, you know, have a good meal, but you got to get on with the rest of life. To do it, to make that your entire life would be truancy. It would be just a life wasted in, in laziness. But it is like that which is in a better country, the end of all ends. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And if joy is meant to be the serious business of heaven, then joy is the serious business of the Christian church. It's the serious business of worship, to come together to celebrate the gospel in joyful feasting when we gather you know, in our, in our new members class, if you've taken it before, this will be a review. If you haven't taken it yet, this will be a preview. In our membership class, uh, I, I, I give an analogy uh, where I talk about three things, two that worship is not and one that worship is. Uh, I say that worship, um, I guess I'm quoting myself here. I say that worship uh, is not meant to be a concert hall or a lecture hall, but a banquet hall. First, worship is not a concert hall, right? If there's one metaphor that I think most sums up the way that most at least American Christians think about worship is that it's basically like a concert. You show up and you sit and you watch professionals do something and you receive it and then you leave. And if what you come and receive is not up to snuff, you go and see if there's a better concert down the street. Right, that the thought is that worship is primarily about what happens up here on a stage, and that the principal job of those who gather is to be entertained. Now, most Christians uh, have been sanctified enough to know you're not supposed to say that. Right? Most, most people know you're not supposed to say, well, I didn't find the worship at this church entertaining enough, so I went to another church that I found more entertaining. So instead, we say things like, well, you know what? The Spirit just didn't move. Or, well, I just wasn't inspired. Or I wasn't, I wasn't fed. Right? We, we find some other way to critique the thing that's happening on the stage on the basis of basically a consumer mindset. Did I receive what I thought I was showing up to receive? There may be nothing that's done more harm. Well, it's a long list, but there's, it's one of the things that's done the most harm to American Christianity. Uh, is this notion uh, that worship is a spectator event and that church is a spectator event. Another metaphor uh, that's, that fits some styles of worship 
is that church is basically a lecture hall, right? That, yeah, there's some music that happens at the beginning, uh, and yeah, there's a little bit of music that happens at the end, and maybe once a month or once a quarter, you get a snack, um, you know, you do communion. But basically, the thing that matters about worship is a lecture, that you show up to hear uh, a well-educated expert pontificate about theology or the Bible or Jesus. Now, as, as a professional pontificator, there's something about that that feels good, right? There's something about that that's like, yeah, you know what? The main thing is what I have to say, right? And so we think, but when we put our minds in that place, we say the primary reason that I show up on Sunday mornings is to learn, that I'm there to learn things. And if I don't learn things, then, it, then, then it's failed to meet my expectations, right? This is, this is a common model uh, in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, right? There were churches that are oriented around experts. And so, if worship is not meant to be a concert hall, and it's not meant to be a lecture hall, what is it? It's a banquet hall. It's a place where we gather together to celebrate the gospel, and what I do certainly plays a role in it, right? Preaching and administering the sacraments is a central role, but it's not a spectator event. It's something we all come together to do, to sing and to pray and to lift our voices and to clap our hands or try to, um, to, uh, to enter into worship together, to gather around the table, to hear the voice of the Savior through His Word, to gather around His table and worship. That when we come together it's a participatory feast in an anticipation of the joy that we believe awaits the entire world forever, right? That it's an inbreaking of the feast of the kingdom of God into this world of sorrow and suffering and struggle and sin and temptation. You know, there's a story uh, that I love in May of 1945, as the Allied army uh, advanced through France and Belgium and then into Germany, uh, in May of 1945, they finally took Hitler's own house and bunker, the Eagle's Nest. Hitler himself had died uh, already at his own hand, uh, but yet the Eagle's Nest still was a stronghold. And in May of 1945, a French force rolled in and took the eagle's nest. And there, uh, they found a wine cellar containing 500,000 bottles of French wine. Half a million bottles of wine. History tells us that Hitler didn't even like wine. Uh, this was just pure Nazi greed and excess and theft. And so he took half a million bottles of French wine and he stuck it in the cellar. And then the French came to liberate uh, the eagle's nest from the Nazi control. And the French officer in, uh, in command let one of his soldiers have the job of opening up the wine cellar. That man's name was Bernard de Nonancourt. Bernard was from Champagne. Uh, and together with his mother and his brother, he was the owner of Laurent Perrier Champagne House. He had seen the Nazi army take uh, the champagne from his neighbors and from his own home. He had seen and heard of them taking the wine from the great Bordeaux houses and Burgundy houses and, and taking it for themselves. And so the, the commander of the French army let Bernard lead the charge and open the doors. 
And he couldn't believe what he found. He said he found bottles dating from the last century from the Lafitte's and the Rothschilds and the Margots, all these incredible Bordeaux's. As he tells the story, he says, soon after us walking into the cellar, about the only sound that could be heard was the popping of corks. It was quite a party. This is something like what Christian worship is meant to be. The sound of the popping of corks in land that has been occupied by sin and death. The sound of celebration breaking out in a world that's been under the grip of evil, of light breaking out of the darkness, joy erupting out of sorrow, and the sounds of champagne bottles popping in such a way that our neighbors begin to turn their ears and listen in and go, hey, what, wonder what's going on in there. Maybe real joy, lasting joy, celebratory joy is possible in this world. And the good news, friends, is that it's given freely. It's not given to the strong or the rich or the good or the proud. The only thing that it takes to enter into this banquet is for the sinners and the crippled and the lame and the blind to receive an invitation they can't believe they got and to come stumbling into the feast and to pull up a seat at the table and to enjoy the feast that Jesus sets. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you left the eternal feast of heaven to come uh, down here so that we could go from God's strangers and enemies even uh, to his sons and daughters, his friends and invited guests. Lord Jesus, thank you for your invitation to the feast. Thank you for showing us that we belong here around your table, not because we're righteous or particularly good or smart or strong, but because you extend your invitation freely and because it comes to even broken, miserable people like us, people who have nothing in ourselves to merit inclusion in your family. And so, Lord, as we turn to this table, uh, it does take an act of faithful imagination to believe that what's happening around this table with this bread and juice is a feast, that it really and truly is a participation in that feast that awaits all of us. But Lord, we pray that you would, by faith, help us to commune with you around your table. Feed us with spiritual food. Nurture our faith, Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.